know that weeping and waiting is a product of sin and problem of this life, but in that waiting, God has redemptive purposes. Rest in the reality of hope that weeping and waiting is not a threat in the life to come. That all anticipation will be answered, all joy made full, and all suffering will culminate in salvation. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you're visiting with us this morning, the regular MO at Grace Bible Church is to preach through books. We take a little break for holidays and other times, and sometimes we do series specific to our ministry, but primary mode of operation is to preach through books. And this morning, we're going to begin the book of 1 Samuel together. And so, I'm just giving you a heads up that we have a lot to get through, because what we're going to do is we're going to introduce the book and we're going to get into the book. So, sometimes, you know, you, you take an entire message to do an introduction, but I really want to get into the book. So, we're going to do a little bit of introducing, and then we're going to cover all of chapter one and into the middle of chapter two, or the first part of chapter two. And some of you are laughing at me on the inside thinking that I can't actually do it. We'll find out together. Growing up, I, well, not just growing up, but I, I love history. I love most kinds of history. Um, I'm usually reading something about history or historical uh, uh, novel or something like that and, and catching myself up or listening to podcasts on some sort of history. And growing up, I, uh, I remember gravitating to this book. It was a book that we, I, would, I would get from the library all the time. I mean, I, I would just go back to it constantly. And it was a book on the presidents, on, on the American presidents. And, and so I would study up and I'd read, you know, information on the presidents. And, and so I have a lot of, I guess, useless presidential knowledge in my head. But I've, I've always loved to read about people. And I think sometimes when we approach the Bible in perspective of our in perspective of people, or when we think about people, we maybe approach people the way I did in reading that book. I would read that book with the question, who are the people? In other words, I would want to learn about the people, and then I would I would focus on the details of those people. And as I matured in my understanding of history and in my understanding of life, I began to ask a more important question, namely about the presidents. Why the people? Because there's a purpose behind these people. And I think sometimes when we come to the Bible, 
we get stuck on the who because we like to read about the people. And we know these people from our Sunday school years, perhaps, and bringing up and hearing about Bible characters. We, we like to know who the people. And in studying 1 Samuel, what we're going to do together, because we're going to encounter characters that, that we do know well, especially if you've been raised in church and you know Sunday school stories. I want to get away from that question of who, and I want to focus on the question of why. Because what we'll see about 1 Samuel in particular is that it's laying down a foundation for something incredibly important, not just within this book, within the whole of what God is doing in the Bible. So we have to ask the question, why? As you know, this book is named after one of the operative characters. There is some debate as to whether or not Samuel actually wrote it. I tend to think that he didn't. I tend to think it was written by a historian later accounting his life and interactions. You say, why? I think for a number of reasons. One, there's some language things you have to keep in mind. Secondly, he dies in chapter 25 and there's six chapters after that. So I I tend to think it was written by a historian recounting Samuel and his, his purpose. You say, where does the, ta- the book take place? The book takes place in the transition from the period of judges to the transition to kingship. You can actually see this with me. You're in, first, you're, you're in the book of 1 Samuel. If you just flip back a few pages through Ruth with me, if you'll do this with me, flip back f- through Ruth. I'm trying to place the book in your Bible historical understanding to the book of Judges. And I want you to read the very last verse. This is, a, this is the theme in the book of Judges because the book of Judges is carrying the story of Israel forward. And it draws our attention to something repeatedly. This is the sixth time we see this line in the book. And it closes out the entire book. In those days there was what? No king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right, now go back to the last text in Ruth if me, with me, if you would. So just flip back to Ruth, the very last page of the book. And if you would look with me at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then Ruth is going to give us a really brief genealogy leading into David. Why is that? To establish not just a person, but a concept. And 1 Samuel is then going to build on this idea and initiate that concept. And it is the concept of kingship in Israel. You probably know this just based on what you know about who appears in this book. Saul, David, etc. So we have to ask the question, who is Samuel? And that is who we're going to be introduced to in this chapter. Would you pray with me? And we're going to launch into 1 Samuel together, all right? Father, what we know not teach us What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. We ask through Christ. Amen. So Samuel, this book within the whole of Scripture exists to establish the historical 
and theological development of kingship, namely centering on the Davidic reign and covenant. So Samuel, this person that we know, and we're going to study this story that we know from Sunday school, or at least aspects of the story, is really the primary figure who brings into initiation the concept of kingship. He does other things. You're going to see him take on the role of priest in the book. You're going to see him take on the role of prophet in the book. But ultimately, how he is intended within not just this book, within the whole of Israel's history, is that he serves in advancing the story of redemption forward by initiating the theology of kingship. So having zoomed out, now let us zoom in. You know this story of Samuel well, the story of his childhood. You look at me, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zephom, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrahite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we're introduced to the family of Samuel leading up to Samuel's life, or leading into Samuel's ministry. And this chapter is foundational as it helps us not only understand the family life of Samuel, but his upbringing and how he is committed then to the Lord. So you see this family, and it's actually, if, if you look at verse 3, we're going to be even further introduced to the family, and I want you to think with me as we come into this text of a road trip with your family. Imagine the last time maybe you and all the kids, or maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was recently, and you and the family were going somewhere, and so you all got in the car, and you all packed everything up, and you were headed somewhere, because that's what the family is doing in this chapter. They are taking a trip together. Verse 3, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So they live in Ramah, and they would go north to Shiloh. This is around a 20-mile journey. It's something they would do every year. They would go up to uh, Shiloh, and they would feast. Shiloh is the place of the tabernacle during this time in Israel's history. This is probably the feast uh, initiated in Judges chapter 21. So they said, this is verse 19, Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east highway that goes up to Bethel to Shechem. So they're probably traveling to observe this feast together. And, and I want you to picture this caravan with me. So maybe you can picture in your van as you're driving your vehicle who's all in the car and who's, who are the personalities making up the road trip. Now, if we were to just see this caravan, this little family journeying up on the way to feast, who makes up this family? Well, there's Elkanah. This is Samuel's father. He is listed in verse 1. He's, we're given a brief family origin. There's one interesting detail that I think is worth noting about Alcana. We're going to point out a few details, but just some things about his family life is if you note that his ultimate place of origin, son of Zeus, this is verse 1, and Ephrathite is technically his ultimate place of family origin is Bethlehem. On this journey is also Penina. This is Elkanah's other wife who provokes 
and bothers Hannah. We'll see that in just a moment. Hannah, the operative character in the chapter, is mentioned for us in verse 2. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And if you look at Penina and Hannah as they travel, they're having very different emotions. In fact, if you note as we follow along in the text, Penina is feeling pretty good about herself and Hannah is feeling somewhat miserable. If you look with me, verses 5 through 8. But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb and her rival used to provoke her and grievously irritate her. So on the journey, they're traveling. Hannah is traveling, Penina is traveling, Elkanah is traveling. It mentions earlier on, verse 2, or, uh, excuse me, verse 3 and 4, that they're going to take all the children with them. So Penina's children as well. So this largely, this is a, a, we're to understand that this is a good many people traveling together. Hannah is not looking forward to this trip. Hannah is not enjoying this trip because it reminds her of something. As they travel, she's constantly reminded by Penina that she has children and Hannah does not. Look with me at verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Well, what, she, what would she not eat? She wouldn't even observe the feast that they went to enjoy together. So if you note with me, the first important detail in the story is that we have a woman weeping in waiting. A woman weeping in waiting. What did she want? She wanted to have a baby. Literally, these words grievously irritate means to cause woe. Painful taunting. In our vernacular, you could, we would say something like to add insult to injury. If you note the extent of her pain in verses 9 through 10, she was deeply distressed and she wept bitterly. In fact, she is so drastically moved in her prayer and pleading and weeping and wailing that the chief priest Eli thinks that she's literally drunk. Look at me at verse 9, and after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, Hannah speaking in her heart only, her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. In other words, she was praying silently prayers of the heart, but her mouth was moving, and so no sound was coming out. So truly, you could say from, you could say from Eli's perspective, this woman's crazy. Something's not right. She must have had too much of the drink, verse 15, but Hannah answered no, or, uh, verse 14, and Eli said, how long will you go on being drunk? 
her weeping and her distress causes such an emotional turmoil that it shows in her physically to the extent that she looks out of control. So she's feeling the grief. You can just imagine. You, you, you've all been a part of something you knew you had to do, but you weren't looking forward to. And so year after year after year, she has to go and enjoy this feast with her family. And she wants to follow her husband because her husband wants to follow God. Elkanah largely is presented as positive in the passage. Verse 1 is a little bit bothersome. He, verse 2, he's, he, had, he had two wives. This is just another reminder when you read it in the Old Testament that this is not what God had in mind. Whenever you read polygamy in the Old Testament, it only ever causes strife and tension. Why? Because this was not God's ideal. But he's leading his family, and so he takes them to feast. He takes them to observe this, 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 this godly ritual. You'll see later that he's a committed father. He wants to lead their family in doing what's right. And so he's leading his wife. And wives, you've all been a part of something your husband was big into and he had to do it and you had to do it, but you, you weren't really excited about it because, and this is the situation. Every year she would go and she would weep and she'd commit herself to the Lord because she wanted to have a baby. And every year her rival would insult and provoke. And in this particular time, it's observed by Eli the priest. It's true of her life, and it's been true of our life, and perhaps yours, that the indescribable pain, that, ind that the indescribable pain of waiting caused painful weeping and turmoil. And her anticipation and desiring a son causes a constancy of tears. Loved one, perhaps you are in waiting today. Maybe you're waiting for a loved one to heal. Maybe you're waiting for heaven so that you may join a loved one. Maybe you have a child in the far off country and you're waiting for them to return. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're like Hannah, and the cry of your heart is that the Lord would give you a child. Maybe you've been there, and you've wept, and you're waiting, and your deepest fear is that that which, which, you, that which you anticipate won't be granted, and that your waiting won't become reality. Loved one, God is aware of your waiting and your weeping. Psalm 56, verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in a bottle. He sees them. He collects them. He tenderly cares in your weeping. Psalm 6, verses 6 through 9, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of my enemies. Depart from me, you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Perhaps you're afraid you'll always wait and you'll only weep 
know that weeping and waiting is a product of sin and problem of this life, but in that waiting, God has redemptive purposes. Rest in the reality of hope that weeping and waiting is not a threat in the life to come. That all anticipation will be answered, all joy made full, and all suffering will culminate in salvation. Romans 5 assures us that we have a hope that will not disappoint us. Rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us. There's an incredible visual given for us in Psalm 126 for the people of God weeping and waiting and what God can bring out of that waiting. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in a dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap in shouts of joy. This image in verse 3 and 4, the the valley of Negev was one of the most arid regions in Palestine at this time. And it received the the littlest rain. And and, and it was so dry that, that as soon as there was rain, vegetation would sprout almost immediately. And it was in a valley, so it would receive the, the waters as it would run down into the valley. And so, so it's literally like this sorrowful, these sorrowful rains, the image of, of tears running down into the valley would produce a harvest of joy. It is in the soil of suffering that God produces a harvest of hope. And it is in the weeping of waiting that God produces wonder and worship. She just wants a child. So how did the hope and wonder flourish in our story? Well, Let's continue as we work through the narrative together. Well, after the feast, Hannah's time of weeping and blessing in verses 17 and 18, she picks herself up and dusts herself off and goes back and eats. So if you look at me, verses 17 and 18, then Eli answered, actually, let's back up to verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And now the family begins the journey home. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife. 
and the Lord remembered her. So we note the first important part of the story is a woman weeping and waiting. And as we continue the story, we're going to see the significance of an unlikely son and unselfish parents. An unlikely son and unselfish parents. So they return home having heard the blessing of Eli. No doubt she shares it with her husband and they enjoy marital, marital intimacy in order to produce a child. In verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, or in other words, the implied meaning is, I have asked for him from the Lord. So after all this weeping and all this waiting and all this wonder, the anticipation is answered and the son is provided. I want to press into this idea of an unlikely son for just a moment, because there's incredible rich theology that as we think about what Samuel is doing in advancing the story of redemption forward, we see often unlikely sons in the advancing of that redemption story. Genesis 17, you know this text, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become, and and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? In fact, not only is Abraham, do Abraham and Sarah prove to us within the matriarchs, the the Jewish matriarchs themselves, that unexpected sons advance the redemptive purposes of God, but Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel. Genesis 11, verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Interestingly, as well in the, the, the story of Sarah and Abraham, Sarah also had a rival, Hagar. Now, in that particular passage, it was Sarah who was unjust to her. But you note that Hagar was able to conceive and Sarah was not. Rebecca in Genesis 25, 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Rachel, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And in that text as well, we find a rival who by implication, did agitate Rachel that Leah was able to have sons and she was not. And why is it so important that we understand these these figures? Because it is from these sons that the entirety of Israel would be born, and therefore God's redemptive story through Israel advanced. What's the significance of the rival or the one who could have a child in comparison to the one who couldn't, because the blessing came out of the extraordinary. It came out of the difficulty. God's redemptive purpose came out of the waiting. We see it in the New Testament. Before we get there, of course, we have Hannah, but we actually even see a Nazarite vow, which you see is, is made of Samuel in, in verse 11, 
Samson's parents struggle with infertility. Samson is born, and they make a Nazarite vow to the Lord before his birth. Now to the New Testament, Elizabeth and Zechariah, but they had no child. This is Luke 1, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And where does their story ultimately lead us to the most unexpected, extraordinary pregnancy of all time? That John the Baptist, born out of unexpected circumstances, would pave the way, would forerun the anointed Son, the Son of God, born out of the most unexpected, unlikely of circumstances. The unifier of all these covenantal figures, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. God works outside of what is expected to accomplish His glory. God works in the waiting and blesses in the barrenness. Now, I think it would be wise here to make a few parental applications because the Old Testament figures are written for our as the New Testament writer says, our instruction. They serve as examples. Don't make them your heroes. Make them your examples. And I think there's a, a fascinating wealth of parental application offered to us here by Elkanah and Hannah. Note firstly that they rooted their parenting in God's faithfulness. They rooted their parenting in God's faithfulness. Look at me verse 23. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So, so after this takes place, um, Samuel is born. Elkanah goes off, verse 21, to worship the Lord, again, to take this journey to Shiloh. But Hannah, verse 22, stays back until he's ready to bring him and offer him a service. But what does Elkanah say? Let the word of the Lord prove true. And if you look at, at Hannah's words in verse 27, or excuse me, verses 26 and 28, and they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and he said, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. They viewed their role as parents as part of the whole of God's will and His Word. They attached their priority in parenting to the accomplishment of God's promises. In other words, their value in parenting was participation in the work and will of God. Where are your values in parenting? Do you attach your motivations for parenting to the faithfulness of God, God's Word, and God's will? Or is there some sort of secondary value that you receive from parenting? I see, I observe multiple misplaced values of parenting today. First of all, you can wrongly place the value in your children. You can wrongly place your value as a parent in your children. In other words, you might just idolize them. 
and you receive all your joy and your proportionate sadness from their performance. You might place your value as a parent and other parents and other people's children so that you're driven to rivalry, you're driven to jealousy, you're driven to comparison, you're driven to insincerity and insecurity. And how you parent your children is on the basis of their performance up against another child. Or perhaps you receive your value in parenting from yourself. And the way that you parent is actually just loving yourself through your child. And you seek all affirmation and pleasure in yourself, but you use your children to receive it. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 gives us a healthy perspective of this idea of motive as it relates to discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. Listen, this next line is where I'm going. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Parents who fail to discipline their children are not delighting in their children. They're delighting in themselves. I don't want the battle. It's not worth it. My child might, might, might like me less. I don't want to have hard conversations. And so we cater to our own fears rather than addressing discipline that needs to take place because we're not delighting in our children. If you love yourself rather than God and your children, you will not practice right, godly, balanced discipline. The second thing I want you to see is their parents, and this is very important. And it's, and it's so significant within the, the, the telling of the whole story, is that they understood their role as parents to be stewards and not hoarders. Stewards and not hoarders. What did, they, what did they do? Do you see this? this is, don't, don't allow the details of the text, the basic detail of the text to, to escape you. Why was she weeping? Do you remember? Why? Because she was waiting. And what was she waiting for? A child. And what did she want? A child. But what was her ultimate purpose for that child? in immediately returning the child back to God, not to keep, her, keep the child for herself. Before he's been born, she desires to commit him. I will give him as servant. Verse 11, vowing the vow. You would expect, after all this hoping and waiting and anticipating and weeping, that that once the child is born, we have to hoard the child and put all the hopes and dreams in that child. You would expect Hannah to be the most helicopter hoarding mom you've ever seen. Don't, don't, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. You might not be safe, please don't. Why? Because my child has to stay with me, safe with me, secure with me. All of which are built on a bad foundation of not just parenting, but the sovereignty of God. I've interacted with families where the parents are essentially less exaggerated versions of, 
of the mother in Rapunzel. They keep their kids from bravery, from confidence, and the need of healthy adventure out of their own fear. Biblical parenting is outward parenting. Loving them so that they leave well. These hoarding parents sap all uniqueness, curiosity, and even sometimes just fun out of their family life. And all the while they're telling themselves they're just trying to protect them. It's control. They create unhealthy dependence. After all, mother knows best. Godly and loving moms and dads know that their role is to parent with an outward trajectory. Parenting is the ongoing process of giving them back as a servant to the one who gave them to you as a steward. But some people can't imagine their own children leaving in danger, in risk, because they love themselves. And what was Hannah and Elkanah's immediate response as examples for biblical parenting? If we have this child, he belongs to God from the beginning. Some people can't imagine their children in a different country on a mission field. But they'll fantasize about their children on a professional sports team thrusting them into the potential of the dangers of money, fame, and body obsession. Parenting is done with an outward trajectory that our children may be given back to the God as servant, to God as servants, because He gave us to them as stewards. There is another indication in this text, in the story, that she is deeply concerned with her child in relation to the Lord, and it's her worship, her praise. We noted firstly together a woman weeping and waiting, and then an unexpected son, and unlikely or unselfish parents. We began in weeping, and now I want you to note with me that we're going to conclude with wonder. Verse 28, therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped there. Verse 1 of chapter 2, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. And she prays this beautiful prayer of adoration if you wanted to summarize this, this prayer of praise, I'm going to work somewhat quickly through it. If you wanted to summarize this prayer of praise, it's really a song of salvation, and it's a song of sovereignty. Uh, verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation. Verse 2, sovereignty, there is none holy like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then she's going to talk about how God in His sovereignty lifts up the humble and He tears down the proud. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, 
But she who has many children is forlorn. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. If you're going to choose as a model for not just your mothering, but your personal meditation on the Lord, ladies, Hannah certainly serves as an operative example. So just to remind ourselves of the full flow, the story begins with an unhappy lady making a difficult journey. She desires something that is good, that the Lord in His good, His sovereignty has not yet given her. It's made difficult by Penina constantly. She wants to serve the Lord. She wants to follow God. She does. You can see it. And she makes a promise to the Lord. And the Lord remembers. And there's the miracle of the son, the unexpected son, and these parents who, who, who understand that they must, in, in keeping with their word and in what is best for their son, make sure that he serves the Lord so they give him back to the Lord. And now there's no weeping, there is worshiping. But I want you to know with me that there's actually in this text more waiting. You say, what are you talking about? Look with me at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his, can you say the next word? King. He will give strength to his king. Question. Is there a king in Israel yet? No. There is not a king until chapter 10. And by the way, he ends up being a pretty disappointing king. Spoiler alert. So do you see how her hope is future-oriented that there must be a king? Now, chances are there's talk of kingship at this point. This is when Israel is asking for a king. So she sets her hope in a king. And how would this waiting ultimately culminate. Well, there's another song of rejoicing. And it sounds a lot like this one. And we just came off the Christmas time, and so I hope it's maybe even ringing bells as we read this song together. And Mary said, Hannah said, my heart, my heart exalts in the Lord. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he, same themes. Notice this, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of God. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, all generations from now on will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things, and his mercy, salvation, is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 55, 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Hannah finishes her song of rejoicing by pointing forward to a king, and Mary finishes her song of rejoicing by pointing backward 
to the fulfilled promises of God. Why? Because Hannah would give Samuel to serve, and Mary would give Jesus to save. Hannah would grieve first and then rejoice at the life of her son, and Mary would rejoice first and grieve over the death of her son, that she might rejoice again at his new life. And through that new life, bring many sons to glory. This little text that we overviewed, with the story worked through together quickly, culminating in, Her- in Hannah's rejoicing at the king that is to come, points us forward to that king. So then the whole of the book, the whole of the Bible, this little book, this, this, this book serves to advance the concept of kingship. And from the very outset, what does this text, the example of Hannah, the prayer of Hannah, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God to remember His suffering people, what does it show us? That through the King to come, God works wonders in our waiting and brings salvation from our suffering. Through the king to come, God works wonders in waiting and salvation through suffering. So what are we to do? We're to look to our king. Our souls are to rejoice in him. To magnify him to find comfort in Him in our waiting, joy in our weeping, hope in our sorrow, the King to come does offer wonder in our weeping and salvation in our suffering. Would you pray with me?